Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today on this beautiful 11th day of Tammuz. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. This is a series on betochen, on trust. And to be sure, we have been studying and are going to continue studying the classic Shar HaBetochen, the Gate of Trust, which is a part of Chovet HaLavavot, Duties of the Heart, authored approximately a thousand years ago by the great Rabbeinu Bechaya, Bar Yosef Ibn Pekuda, the Dayan of Sargosa. Today we're going to do something a little bit different because rather than begin from the text, which we've typically done, with the exception of a prologue or opening in which we didn't read directly from a text. And I will tell you which page we're on in that new Kihat edition, so if you want to follow inside, you can. I'm not making this up. (laughs) We're going to be looking in the text. But I'm going to do something different today because we're going to begin by introducing a topic, a topic of what I believe is of great importance a topic which most of you, if not all of you, are familiar with, yet, by and large, you may actually be making a monumental blunder about this issue by associating it with a particular age or cohort. And as such, not realizing that you and I are very much in the line of fire. And we will come back to Rabbeinu Bechaya with Hashem's help. Today's subject is peer pressure. Now, as a matter of interest, the word peer shows up in the 14th century in English as, quote, an equal in rank, character, or status. We're talking uh, Anglo-Latin from the 14th century. I think the first time uh, it's used in, in the Latin or Anglo-Latin sense, it means like a, and I quote, a nobleman of a special dignity. That's how it shows up in writing in the late 15th century. And that's taken from Charlemagne's 12 peers and the old romances who like the Arthurian knights of the round table are called so 
because they're all equal, right? The round table. Now, incidentally, that round table paradigm, yeah, it has an ancient origin in Torah and in Kabbalah, but I'm not going to go there now. So, in a sociological sense, the word peer does not appear in English as in one of the same group or social set until a mere 76 years ago. In 1944, for the first time we hear of a very familiar term today, a peer review or an evaluation of a scientific project by experts in the relevant field. So my opinion about astrophysics is not really relevant. I don't know much about astrophysics. I know enough to sound faintly intelligent, and that's about it. So if somebody were to write a paper on astrophysics, and I were to review it, you couldn't call that a peer review. I'm not a peer. In that arena, <laughs> in that part of the heavens, I am a total novice or layperson. Now, if there's a, a writing, a halachic writing, or maybe a manuscript, uh, somebody wants to suggest something in Jewish philosophy or mysticism, I might be in the running, possibly. I might be considered somebody eligible for what they call peer review, possibly, because I have some background and I have familiarity. So the notion of peer, in its original sense, meant the concept of equals. Where does peer pressure come from then? We know, as a matter of fact, that peer pressure is not necessarily exerted by equals, but rather by the masses. That's an interesting question. So I also discovered that the word peer, which in English means to look closely, that's a uh, 16th century variant of the word peerin, which means a long look, like a gaze, and is of uncertain origin, but it, it does uh, have seemed to have survived in the English language as in peered or peering, like somebody who's looking for something. And that's interestingly how it gets used in the notion of peer pressure. I was quite surprised to learn that peer pressure is just as old as me. It does not appear in print. It's not appeared in any kind of relevant conversation until 1971, a mere 50 years ago. And it probably is related to the word looking closely because peer pressure comes from people who look closely at what others are doing. Not necessarily your equals, not as in a peer review, but as in people looking around to see what others are doing and be influenced by it. So apparently, this idea of peer pressure is originally introduced and it is further developed over the next couple of decades, especially spearheaded by a very eminent psychologist and professor named Lawrence Steinberg, who found that adolescents whose friends and parents support academic achievement could perform better than those who didn't receive that kind of support from one another. In other words, there's this feeling that people must do the same thing as others their age. 
or as others in their social group. And they need to do this because that's how they can be liked or be respected. So people start drinking, for example, or taking drugs or behaving loosely in the intimate arena of human conduct because of peer pressure. So peer pressure is not an adolescent, it's not a teenage thing. In fact, it's documented that it starts very, very early in childhood. Children are trying to get other children to play the games they want. And this increases through childhood and it reaches its intensity in the preteen and teen years. All adolescents, it is said, deal with peer pressure and often on a daily basis. All of this is very well documented in many university papers, especially, as I mentioned, by Lauren Steinberg, who is a psychology professor at Temple University. And Lauren Steinberg has anecdotal evidence proving that the intensity of peer pressure usually peaks by about age 15 and begins to decline after the age of 18. So they hear it from the experts. So peer pressure is a direct influence on people by other people because they look at what other people do, because they want to fit in, because they want to be accepted. And as such, they will choose to alter their attitudes, their values, their behaviors in order to conform to an influencing group or an influential individual. And I don't think there's many teenagers who watch my classes. I'm not so cool. So you're younger than me or older than me. I'm saying, hey, <laughs> this has got nothing on us. We wouldn't do anything because of peer pressure. We're adults. We're independent people. If I don't like the environment I'm in, I simply switch it. Now, I want to make it very clear. I'm not an educator, per se. I don't understand adolescence or childhood any better than anybody else does. My father does that. I did not come today to comment on what people tend to associate with the term peer pressure. I will not talk about children and I will not talk about adolescents. I want to talk about adults. The peer pressure that you and I suffer from. Let me repeat that. The peer pressure we suffer from. And I'm using that word pointedly because it's not in all likelihood a good thing. Because it's causing you to veer from your beliefs, to do things you don't really want to do. It's causing you to alter your attitude and embrace ideologies you don't inherently agree with. And you're probably thinking, what is Mendel Kaplan talking about? I'm an adult. A child is stuck in his class. What's a kid supposed to do in fifth grade if all the kids are teasing him, making fun of him? Bullying is a terrible epidemic in the schools. It has nothing to do with modern variations that people have introduced over the last 10 or 15 or 20 years. It has nothing to do with the politically correct woke culture of, of, of changing attitudes of society. It's just not true. I was bullied as a kid. None of that was around 30 and 40 years ago. 
bullying is typical for kids. Kids will tend to stick with their cohort or their group. Kids want to be popular. And you can't just say, well, I don't like a part of this group. I don't, I, don't, I don't like going to the school. I'm not going to go to that school anymore. You're kind of stuck. The school your parents chose for you is the school you're in. That's, that's, this is your grade. That's your, those are your colleagues in school, your classmates. An adult can simply remove his or herself from a particular environment. If you find a job environment toxic, the good idea is to find another job. We're not slaves. We're adults. Don't like the job? Move on and find a new job. You don't like the show you're davening in? You don't like the circle of people? We have a big show. You can move to a different part of show. <laughs> you can associate with a different group of people. When we become majors, once we pass the teenage years, we really become independent. I don't care what people are going to say. I don't have peer pressure, you're thinking. My dear friends, this is a monumental mistake. We are all influenced by our environment, and oftentimes, much to our detriment. This is something all of us as adults have to be keenly aware of. And the answer, yeah, believe it or not, it's to be found in the field of betochen. If your betochen, if your trust in Hashem will be right, you will be able to transcend this problem with ease. Otherwise, I'm not so sure. In fact, I'm not sure at all. And that really is the point and the direction that today's class is going to take. So, having set aside what you might have thought today's class is going to be about, today's class is going to be about adults. Today's class is going to be about people who are going to be influenced in a negative way because of peer pressure. Now, the truth is that peer pressure has vastly expanded over the last decade or so, and that's because of social media. This is true for children also. The kids don't get any respite. When the kids aren't together in class, they're together on some kind of social media platform. I think Facebook is for the old fogies like me and you. I think the kids are cooler and onto new stuff, but there is copious evidence of children who have even harmed themselves, even so far as taking their lives from their shaming on, on social media. And it can be an awful, debilitating experience. This is also richly documented, or should I say, <laughs> not poorly, but horribly documented with many, many people who have suffered public shaming and the idea of being attacked on social media. So peer pressure, the peer pressure I want to talk about with you today, the peer pressure I want to be able to kind of overcome today, is actually a bigger problem than has ever been before. Social media is not a bad thing per se. It's a very sharp knife. It enables Torah to be taught in a way that is broader and vaster probably than ever in history. Where somebody like myself, in the best of circumstances, in a different age, could have shared 
ideas of Torah with a small group, a hundred, maybe 500, who knows, maybe a thousand people today? Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands in theory can be influenced and can be educated and can be uplifted and inspired by words of Torah because the internet is a marvelous tool. It's a sharp knife though and it can cut very, very deeply. One of the pitfalls is this notion of continuous influence and a craving that peer pressure exerts a craving to be accepted, a craving, a craving to be loved, a craving to be successful. Now, I'd like to suggest, although I can't do so with absolute veracity, that there's a major difference between childhood or adolescent peer pressure and the peer pressure we as adults are going to experience. Children imitate by nature. Imitation plays a very large role in children's lives. In order to pick up skills, the children have to learn from somebody. So they're always looking or searching for behaviors and attitudes around them that they can co-opt. How often have people said, your children will do as you do, not as you say, because the children are far more intuitive than we tend to realize. They pick up on very small and subtle but real things. And they imitate those behaviors. A house where the children saw parents reading and studying is a house where the children will likely also be studious or at least value the notion of reading. A house, God forbid, where children saw verbal or heaven forfend worse abuse between the parents they revere and respect and love will likely lead them to adopt toxic behaviors like that in the future. In a house where the children are raised with affection and consideration and sensitivity and, yes, even respect, the children will exhibit those behaviors as well. And at a certain point, it becomes part of their second nature because ultimately, nurture and nature at a certain point melt. The teenage years are very, very challenging ones. That's because by nature, the child always wants to push away and be free. As one eminent psychologist once said to me, the first body movements a child makes at a very, very early age is to push away from the embrace of his mother or father. At a certain point, <laughs> we as parents know we love when the kids like they cuddle. At a certain point, they don't want to cuddle anymore. They want freedom. But that's limited. They want to be free. They want to be independent to a degree. They keep coming back to home base. But that homing pigeoned nature gets increasingly attenuated. And by the time they're teenagers, they want to be free. They push away. This is one of the reasons that so many teenagers fall into gangs or other kinds of toxic groups because they're looking for a family unit. But, you know, your parents are never cool. So it's all driven by the notion of imitation. I really believe that the children's instinct to defer to adults' judgment or to majority opinions is something that tapers off with age, and that's probably why the peer pressures you've heard of refer to children and adolescents. 
I'm talking about the notion of people being affected by their environment, A, because it's their nature, and B, because they feel threatened otherwise. And I think B is perhaps or possibly even more important than A, but it doesn't come without understanding A. So even though the psychologist will tell you that the importance of peers declines upon entering adulthood, and the notion of social acceptance, which causes people or teenagers to engage in risky behavior and life-threatening things or making bad judgment is, yeah, by and large, something that kind of falls away when people become more mature. The truth is that there is copious proof to the notion that peer pressure is something that affects adults in a very, very strong way. Let me talk about, let me talk about how psychologists today believe peer pressure works. And then let me share with you ancient Torah sources that indicate that that is actually part of our natural or organic makeup. Our sages recognized this as a challenge, an issue, or a problem literally millennia ago. So the psychological explanation that I googled, and you can google this, I don't think you'll come up with something much different. The best working modern theory is something called the identity shift. So this was introduced by a social psychologist. Her name is Wendy Trainer. And she weaves together Festinger's two seminal social psycho psychological theories. And it goes like this. We all want to be in a state of harmony. You know, synergy, balance. Comfortable with yourself. Every one of us wants to be comfortably settled and at peace with themselves. This harmony is disrupted when we're faced by the threat of external conflict. For children, it's social rejection. We don't want to be rejected. So we thought we had this all figured out, but then all of a sudden we found that we might get rejected. I know what you're thinking. Adults don't care about rejection. I'm a big, I'm a big boy. I can live on my own. Ah, we'll come back to this. It's easy to talk about adolescence, children. So you're afraid of social rejection for the adolescent. And therefore, a person doesn't want to fail to conform because they might be rejected. And that puts them at odds or in conflict with what's going on around them. So they conform to this standard that they believe to be widespread or popular. So we started with harmony. I was at peace with myself. I, I finally figured things out. I know what I like. And I discovered that what I like is in conflict with what other people like. Peer pressure indicates that I'm afraid of being rejected. So I'm afraid of external conflict. I'm not at war with myself. Now I'm tangling with others. So I'm going to follow the leader or follow what other people are doing because I don't want to be in conflict with them. Who does that put me in conflict with? That's right, myself. <laughs> I was at peace with myself. Now I'm at peace with everybody else or behaving homogeneously with the rest of society and civilization. Now I'm not at peace with myself. 
That's not good. Which leads me into the most devastating effect of peer pressure. Namely, that in order to rid them oneself of this inner conflict, which now I feel self-rejection instead of a social rejection, I myself am horrified at myself. I can't stand myself. That causes me to adopt everybody else's standard as my standard. This intuitively is done to eliminate one's internal conflict, to be in a state of harmony. In other words, peer pressure not only affects the way I act, in the end, peer pressure affects the way I feel and think. In other words, we are in danger of being influenced to the point that we will become somebody we don't recognize because of those external influences. The danger of peer pressure is not skin deep. The danger of peer pressure, if it's negative peer pressure, and most often it is, the danger of peer pressure is that it can actually transform us from within. That's a big problem. That's not just a problem for teenagers. It's a problem for adults. More so than you could possibly imagine. Let me take you to the words of Maimonides, Rambam. In the section of Halacha called Hilchot Deot, the laws of ideas, ideals, attitudes, perspectives. There's many ways to translate the word deot, literally opinions. In the beginning of the sixth chapter, Maimonides, culling from millennia of Torah tradition, succinctly sows for us a tapestry, a short halacha, which sums up the essence of peer pressure from a Torah true perspective, and it's got nothing to do with a particular age or a standing in life. Listen to the words of Rambam. Derech briyosei shal adam. The nature of a person's creation. The nature, in other words, of one's being. What Rambam is talking about is a human predisposition. We are all predisposed by nature. We are all predisposed to be influenced by our cohort, by our peers, by our friends, By what the people in our society are doing. The person will behave as per the behavior. He will adopt the behavior of those around him. Think about the Rambam's words through the prism of modern psychology. A person is going to be nimshach. He's going to be drawn. The meaning of drawn, like water that's drawn from a source. Drawn means to go away from something. A person is being drawn after something. You know what you like. 
You know what you think. You know what your opinion is. You know what your attitude is. And yet, if you're left unchecked, your nature is such that you will be drawn. Drawn away from your own inner harmony to try and engage because we're all social animals. We all crave friendship. We all want relationship. We thrive on it. So my nature is to be drawn after this. And therefore, if I'm going to be drawn after this, and then I find myself in conflict, what am I intuitively going to do? I'm going to try to be like everybody else. I'm being drawn after. I'm going away from myself. But if I'm right, and the Rambam actually is alluding to modern psychological theorem, this won't only be something that affects my behavior. In the end, it'll affect my attitudes, my mores, my ideals, my opinion about things. I start to function differently because I want to be at harmony. I want to be in a state of inner peace. I don't want to be in a state of conflict with myself. So I have to change myself so that I'm no longer in conflict with others or myself. I didn't have the courage to stand up to others. Certainly not without thinking very carefully about it being motivated to do so. So what should you do? And why Rambam is telling this to us? He's not a, not a book of psychology. Well, he's telling it to us because we have a halachic obligation to follow what is right and what is good. L'fikach, he says, You should choose your circle carefully. And this is why I said I'm not addressing children because they don't really, they don't have this choice. It's tough being a kid. It's really hard to go through school if you happen not to be in a good group. It's, it's hard to change schools. There isn't always another option. It's, it's an issue. It gets even more challenging for teenagers. You're entirely influenced by this group of people around you. Once you're an adult, you can make a choice. If I don't like this group of people, I don't associate with them. Simple as that. I choose a new social set of interaction. That freedom doesn't come to us until we're in our 20s. Until we've gone, if you will, out of that system of adolescence. The Rambam here is talking to adults. He says, you choose to be social, to engage with righteous people. Veleshev, and to settle yourself or spend time, Eitzel hachachamim tamid. Why? Well, because you're always going to be influenced. So we can create a positive peer pressure situation where I'm going to be influenced by good people. I find my, my own selfishness in conflict with people around me who are selfless. So what do I do? Well, I'm going to behave selfish if everybody else is acting selflessly. I'm not going to behave in a lustful fashion if everybody else is behaving in a pious fashion. But then I'm in conflict with myself. I'm this selfish, lust-filled, creepy animal, and everybody else around me is so beautiful and sweet and high-minded. I want to be at peace with myself. So intuitively, what am I going to start to do? I'm going to start to change into the person I'm behaving like, which leads us into another Maimonidean ideal that is further developed in a quantum leap forward by the Alter Rebbe in Tanya, that a person is influenced by their actions. And therefore, he says, 
don't give a thousand dollars to tzedakah at once, but it's better to give a thousand acts of tzedakah because every act of tzedakah will slowly refine you. I don't want to be in conflict with my behavior. I want to be like the way I'm acting. So I'll act in a righteous, a pious way, and it will necessarily affect me kind of outside in. And it will bring transformation. In the language of modern psychology, this makes perfect sense. And the things that the Alta Rebbe talked about developing and explaining Maimonidean ideas are today widely acclaimed by modern psychologists. But that's only a development of the last two decades or so. This isn't Maimonides' ideas, what we're talking about now. Maimonides' ideas about Reiv HaMaisa, about doing a lot of action, engaging in things until it changes you. He's talking now about environment. It's not Maimonidean. He draws on a long tradition of oral Torah that goes back to the Mishnah, the Talmud, the Medrash, and of course, ultimately, to Moshe at Sinai. The Rambam simply, in his inimitable way, boils it down into a few simple words. He takes the thesis and the theorems of the sages as they had been expounded upon, and he succinctly snaps it all together. In one sentence, he told you, stick with the good people. Stay with the wise. That's what you should do. And you should distance yourself from the wicked people, from those who blunder in the darkness, he says. Why? You shouldn't be uh, distant, exclusive, think you're better. Nah, Ramam says that's not the issue. The thing is, so that you don't learn to imitate their behavior. This is not my idea, Rambam says. King Solomon spoke about this. In the book of Proverbs, he says, Walk with the wise, yechkam. But do you absorb wisdom by virtue of walking with somebody? Kind of. Because the behavior that leads a person to acquisition of wisdom doesn't have to be taught. It can actually be caught, quite literally. If you pasture yourself with fools, then you're going to be inflicting self-harm. That's King Solomon, Proverbs 13. The Rambam says this is not only about your immediate inner circle. He says, ultimately, what if you live in a province, a neighborhood, a civilization? Today it's a global village. Eh? Their attitudes, their behavior is bad. People don't walk in a straightforward fashion. Rama says, well, you got to move. <laughs> he says, <laughs> Go to a place where everybody's righteous. A place where people behave properly. Now get this. <laughs> what if all the places that he's aware of, <laughs> the places he's heard of, maybe he doesn't know every corner of the world, but the places he's familiar with, all have rotten ideals. <laughs> You're thinking, really? When, when was Rambam living? Well, he was living in the 12th century, but guess what? He says, zmanenu, 11th century, pardon me. He says, like our time. Can you imagine what Rambam would have to say if he was living in the 21st century? So what do you do? If 
It's, this is like a global pandemic, a moral pandemic. There's a decaying, a rotting of attitudes that has really cut across all elements of human anthropology as we might know it today. We're living in a rotten society. People have insane ideas, inane ideas, and this is what you're surrounded with. What are you supposed to do? It's a good question, eh? The Rambam has some advice for you. He says, if you can't extricate yourself from the situation, yeshiv levada yechidi. Well, then become a loner. Disassociate. Shenemar yeshiv bodad v'yidim. It's a verse in Lamentations. Just be quiet, he says. Just, to, just distance yourself. What we call in modern English, disengage. What happens if they don't let you disengage? Ramam says, run to the hills. Find a cave. It's not an excuse to be bad. A person will not be excused when he stands before God someday. He says, why would you behave this way? He says, well, everybody else was doing it. It's not going to be considered a valid reason. Because in the end, we are responsible for ourselves and for our behavior. So that's what the Rambam says. Now, the truth is that this, this idea is it's not an absolute concept. There is a notion of following exterior or non-Torah issue customs. The gracious Rabba tells us, you come to a village, a civilization, so you follow its mannerisms. When you go into some kind of city, you can adopt the mores as long as they don't have an impact on things which are of Torah orientation. The kind of food you eat, as long as it's kosher, is not relevant. The kind of language you speak, as long as it's respectful and modest and clean, is not relevant. Even the kind of societal norms, it's not necessarily relevant. Everybody's got shtick. You know, every land has shtick, every anthropology has shtick. <laughs> In fact, sometimes when people who come from different backgrounds meet or date, they have issues because different things mean different things in different places. There was a fascinating study that was done. Um, American soldiers who married British girls during the months leading up to Normandy, where the United States was fully plunged into the conflict in Europe in World War II, but for I don't know, maybe a year or maybe longer, there were American and Canadian troops that were stationed in Great Britain. And the British soldiers were fighting elsewhere. They were in North Africa. So there was no young men. And some of the, a lot of the British girls were dating American or Canadian boys. And there's a fascinating study that I read many, many years ago about the issues they were having. And very much in the non Torah world, but like at what point in dating did people touch or kiss and what did it mean? So for the American boy, apparently it meant nothing. It was casual. But for the British girl, that was like, wow, you know, in the antechamber of intimate conduct. So 
she'd misinterpret that, that language, the body language or the, the behavior, and, and go somewhere like with the American man said, like, whoa, <laughs> how'd we end up going there? I'm not endorsing this kind of behavior at all, of course. That's not the point. The point is that different, this is just one example of how people do different things. And, you know, people do business differently. People engage in friendships differently. That, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with following the mannerisms of a place. You know, when the Rebbe came to the United States, he said, when he accepted the mantle of leadership as Rebbe, he said, it's customary here to make a statement, so I'm going to make a statement. No Rebbe's before had made a statement upon their ascension to leadership. All right, it was different time, different place, different milieu. Here you make a statement. And the Rebbe's statement, of course, was about love and the three loves that are one love, love of Hashem, love of Torah, love of Yisrael. It's a subject for, a beautiful subject for a different day. My point is, that when the Rambam says, avoid everything around you, he's talking about a very specific arena, namely the arena of things that infringe on what is considered to be moral, what is considered to be decent, what is considered to be righteous or the opposite from a Torah perspective. So did Rambam really advocate that we should uh, live in caves? As he says here, Many, of course, say no. It's a proverbial notion. He didn't mean we should go to live in caves or hills. It's, 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 a, it's a perspective on life. And let me present the, the Torah perspective as I understand it. I heard from many of my mentors and teachers over the years. I'll begin with a little bit of a metaphor. You know, we Jewish people have a kosher diet kosher doesn't mean holy or blessed. It means prepared appropriately. And one of the interesting things about, about kashrut, about food prepared appropriate, is that many things that are kosher aren't organically kosher. Vegetables, broadly speaking, are kosher. Fruits, broadly speaking, are kosher. They need to be prepared today because with the end of pesticide use, the bugs have returned. So to make it kosher, I need to purge it of bugs, which are prohibited by virtue of Torah law. And then you may choose to, to cook or eat raw. But when it comes, however, to meat, it's a big deal to turn a kosher animal into kosher food. So there has to be a humane, painless act of slaughter. And then there has to be a separation of many, many forbidden parts of the animal that we're not allowed to eat like something called chelev, which is certain areas of forbidden fats, or the notion of the hindquarters, certain sinews. And then, meat is full of blood, but blood is prohibited by Torah. Lifeblood, biblically, rabbinically, all blood is prohibited by Torah, but meat's full of blood. So <laughs> how could you ever have kosher meat? I'm so glad you asked. The answer is we have to find a way to draw the blood out and then rinse it off. And... Since time immemorial, kosher meat has been heavily salted with coarse salt. That's the reason it's called kosher salt, because that's how poultry and meat are made kosher. You coat it with a layer of very, very coarse salt, a heavy layer of coarse salt, and the nature of salt is that it draws. And it's left for 18 minutes. But immediately afterward, the salt begins to wane in its strength. And at that point, the salt has to be removed, banged off, and we have to rinse the meat clean of the salt. 
And the following kind of uh, biology is introduced. Aidi detored lemiflot loy bola, which is Hebraic for, for Aramaic for saying when something is busy expelling, torid, it's busy, lemiflot, to expel, it doesn't reabsorb the blood because the salt's pulling the blood out. So the meat is expelling the blood, and because the direction is going outward, it doesn't go get reabsorbed. But once the process of expelling wanes, once that intensity begins to taper off, then we have a problem. Then it can start to reabsorb again. Oh, so we have to get rid of the salt. Because the salt wanes, it weakens, and the biology of expelling, the direction begins to rotate or turn in the other fashion. Here's the proverbial idea as it applies to human, the human condition. We as human beings are both recipients and benefactors. We are both capable of, pardon me, we are all capable of both giving and taking. In fact, one could define relationship by its amino acids as a give and take. In every relationship, there are two parties, each of whom lack something, and each of whom have something to give. Hence, a relationship flowers. People who bring out the worst in each other are probably not going to be good friends. But good friends will bring out the best from each other. A good marriage is made of somewhat opposite, but not really loggerheads. It's way too hard to have a good marriage, to put a man and woman together who are different in every aspect of their life. But men and women are different enough, and we each have something to contribute. In a very literal level, the act of procreation is benefaction and recipient, and then development. And there's unique energy. The father gives one energy, the mother gives another energy. This is a Torah idea. And they shouldn't be confused. And each one has their unique contribution to make, and that creates a sense of balance. Because balance comes from conflicting directions, and a harmony, and a synergy, just like a person who balances on a tightrope. Life is oftentimes like a tightrope. We need to have a love for Hashem, called Ahava. We need to be in awe or revere Hashem, called Yira. And that love and awe, love and fear, as it's mistranslated, creates a balance. It's metaphorized in the Zohar as two wings. Dare I use uh, Eastern language, yin and yang? Okay, so do we have this in every relationship? There's something that I have, and as somebody who has, I want to give. Everybody wants to give. We all love to share. And you sense an ability to gain, to receive. But a normal relationship is one where there's give and take. Which, of course, makes the notion of relationship with God fraught, because God lacks nothing. That's a very long subject for a very different day.
But we can have a relationship with God by God's grace, not because God really needs anything, but because He makes Himself needy for us. But again, I don't even want to get into that now. So that's the notion of relationship. We will all, at all times, have a relationship with the environment around us. If it's cold around us, we may be cold. If it's hot around us, we may be uncomfortable. We're always going to have the way we relate to the world around us. The question is, the question is, how do we do so without being influenced by it? And this takes us in the direction of what I call peer pressure. We are going to want to fit in. Rambam says, you can't fit in. If what's going on around you is toxic and wrong, you don't want to fit in. Well, where do I go then? You isolate yourself, which doesn't necessarily mean geography. It doesn't mean lock yourself in a cave. If it's cold, you wear a coat. If there's danger around you, you protect yourself. What's the best way to protect yourself? The best way to protect yourself from not becoming absorbent of toxins or negativity. Well, physically, it's very easy. You wear a coat of mail. But when we talk about this give and take, I'm in a relationship. I'm, I'm dealing with the world around me. How can I be certain I won't be absorbing negativity? The answer is because I am necessarily going to be giving, not taking. I make a decision that I'm going out there not to become a part of, but rather to be a part. And I see myself as a beacon as a source of light, and I'm going to share that light. I'm not actually having a close friendship or relationship with people or ideas or ideals which are unhealthy or untorah. So it's not really my lehischaver. It's not really my social circle. Who's my real social circle? My real social circle is tzaddikim, is chachamim, is righteous people. Surround yourself, your inner circle, your real friends. But then there's your professional life. And I'm not talking about your career necessarily, although this will cross over into your career. I'm talking about your career as an ashama. The more important career, not the career that's a means to an end to put a roof over your head, but the purpose for life. Your neshama was sent to this world on a mission, on a mission by God. And if you're found in a certain place, it means God sent you there and you have a purpose. And you must know that you are a shliach. You're an agent. And a shliach, an agent, draws his or her power from the mishaleach, from the principle that sent you. So if Hashem, if Almighty God placed you in a situation, He also gave you the strength to be a source of influence. Think about that. You have to be a source of positive influence. So, if you're going to be a source of positive influence and you see something going wrong, what are you supposed to do about that? Now, in the Western world, they say, well, you see something wrong, you just like look the other way. Who am I? Who am I to lecture somebody else, to tell somebody else? Well, you're not you as you alone. You represent something. So I'm going to try to share Torah ideas everywhere and anywhere with whomever will listen. And I don't want to absorb toxic ideas. I'm not going to because I'm not engaging because I'm looking for fulfillment. I'm not engaging because I'm looking for 
edification or enhancement of my life. As a Torah Jew, Torah provides me with that. I can try to share the beauty that I'm fortunate enough to come in contact with, with others as well. This is something that deserves contemplation. And if you're watching live, I'm glad you are. And I hope you'll come back to this and listen to it again carefully. And more importantly, I hope you'll think about what I'm saying. Because all of this leads us in a very interesting direction. And now I'm getting back to Rabbeinu B'chaya and the Shara B'tochen. In Rabbeinu B'chaya's Shara B'tochen, we talked about this notion of not being subservient to others. Why would somebody be subservient to others? Because they need the others. Because that person provides me with a living. Because that person protects me. Because that person is going to enable me to succeed. Fiddlesticks, says Rabbeinu Bachaya. That's absolutely untrue. And if you want to follow along the English translation of uh, the Kahat, the recent translation, I'm on page 12, going on to page 13. Rabbeinu Bachaya said, absolutely not. You are free. You are a slave no longer. This was the subject of the previous episode. If you didn't see it, go back and watch it. Now, one moment. I'm a slave no longer. I don't have to ingratiate myself before others. I don't have to listen to what others are going to tell me to do. And I don't have to do something which I myself believe is wrong. Because, because I'm not afraid of anybody. And we'll talk about that in the next episode. I don't need people to survive. Survival comes from Hashem. It's all a mirage. It seems that my parnasa, that my sustenance, that my protection, that my success will come from other people. But it's not true. It only looks that way. That's the mechanism Almighty God built to obfuscate and camouflage His continuous involvement with every single detail of life. The truth? The truth is that everything comes from Hashem. That's betochen. That's trust in Hashem. That's faith internalized. That's the belief in God that's not only atmospheric, something I pay homage to or pledge allegiance to. That's something that I actually can live by. And if I live by it, I'm a slave no longer. But I'm going to be influenced by my environment. Now I'm going to be a little bold now. I'm going to insert everything I just spoke about right into the next piece of what Rabbeinu Bechai is saying. I know that's not the way the annotator or translator put it, but I, I don't agree with his approach. I think that Yispashit me big day he should divest himself of their favors, which is how we finished our previous episode. the bother of being gracious. Chayvus tagmulam, the obligation to pay them back for any good they do. I think that's where you put the end of a paragraph. I would like to humbly suggest that ve'im if he needs to rebuke them, is a new paragraph. This is a new idea. And there's a bit of a missing link. And Rebbeinu B'chai doesn't talk about it. Maybe he expected us to figure this out by ourselves. I think he did, actually. Because, like, ask yourself the question. 
If you're looking inside, if you have the book, look inside. If not, listen to me carefully. He says, And if he's going to rebuke them, then don't be careful about their honor. Don't be afraid to offend them. Rabbi, Bachaya, why in heaven would I be rebuking other people? Why in heaven am I getting involved in other people's lives? Are you kidding? I got my own problems. Who asked for this? Why would the Pena Bachaya even take us in this direction? So, the translator inserted the words, if he needs to. Why does he need to? It doesn't, this doesn't say that in, in the original words of the text. It doesn't say, if he needs to. It doesn't say the word need. It says, and if he rebukes them. Why would I rebuke anybody? Ah, there's a missing link here. My humble suggestion is that the missing link is that each and every one of us is susceptible to peer pressure. Peer pressure is a really big deal. I want to give you a, going away from the text again, going back into the modern world, an example of the possibility of peer pressure, how far peer pressure might be able to take somebody. And before I begin to share this with you, I want to tell you that I personally, by virtue of hundreds of hours of conversations with my own grandparents and with survivors who saw far worse, absolutely disagree with the conclusions that Christopher Browning came to in his book, Ordinary Men, Reserve Police Battalion 101. I totally disagree. I think that he is wrong-headed in his approach. And I think that his conclusion is faulty. I'm not the only one. Somebody wrote a book refuting what he wrote. And then some people wrote a book refuting the refuter. But I'm going to tell you why I disagree with all this. And I'm going to, I'm going to prove it to you. It's a bit of a diversion. I'm sorry for boring you. It's actually not boring. This, this is actually interesting. So Christopher Browning relies on the analysis of the men in Reserve Police Battalion 101. In case you didn't hear about this book or don't know about who these people are, this is Nazi Germany. The late 1930s, 1939, 1940, 41, 42. Okay. These are not ardent Nazis. These are ordinary, middle-class men, working-class uh, working men from Hamburg. They were drafted to the Wehrmacht and they were found ineligible for regular military duty. They didn't have what it takes to be a soldier. It's not an easy thing to go to fight in the front. So, they were drafted into a police order. A sickening police order. They were sent to a place called Josefo, which was a ghetto in Poland, the Jewish ghetto. If you know a little bit of Holocaust history, you know that the Nazis concentrated Jews into single places, concentrated areas. They would take over a Jewish neighborhood and turn it into a ghetto, oftentimes with barbed wire around it, locking the people in, concentrating far, far more people than the space could possibly hold, pushing their existence literally to the edge of possibilities people living horrible lives, unsanitary conditions, no room to, 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 to breathe, 
people are pitted against one another. It's a horrible situation. You probably heard of the Warsaw Ghetto. That's a famous ghetto, but there were hundreds, if not thousands, of such ghettos. One of the most shocking numbers I ever discovered is, and this has only been discovered uh, in the last couple of years, that the amount of concentration camps and detention camps, and some of them are very, very small, but just a few dozen people who were held against their will in inhumane conditions, most often succumbing, succumbing to the conditions or being murdered. The number of such camps, if you didn't hear this before, it'll be a shock to you, but you can Google it and find out. I'm not making this up. Over 60,000. 60,000. So anyway, Battalion 101 is sent on a military mission to go to Josepho and to round up the men and then to kill. Let me rephrase that. To murder the woman, the children, and the elderly on site. To shoot everybody dead. And the men would be rounded up and sent off to work for the Wehrmacht before they would be killed. So during these executions, there was a few dozen men who were granted release of their execution tasks, and they were reassigned to guard or truck duty. They were the nice guys, just carting away the men. Others apparently tried to stall, and they didn't really want to be assigned to this firing squad. And apparently after these executions were completed, we're talking about mass murder of women, children, and the elderly. The people were shaken. Oh, don't you feel bad for them? So they drank heavily because they were shaken by the, their ordeal. That's the, that's the opening thesis or the premise of this book. At the end of his book, Browning supplies his theory on Battalion 101's actions. And he says it was a combination of, quote, authoritative and peer pressure that became a powerful coercive tool. He says, he posits that the Nazi leadership wanted to keep the country's soldiers psychologically healthy and therefore he didn't want to force the soldiers to commit these murders because it could make them crazy. It's so demonical, it's so maniacal, it's so inhumane that it could actually alter their state of normalcy. That wouldn't be good. German soldiers have to be, you know, well-toned. Can't, can't risk their emotional well-being on murdering Jews. Now, apparently, throughout the German ranks, nothing negative would happen to the soldiers or policemen who refused to join a firing squad or a Jewish search party. They could be assigned to some other duty, but they would be subject to some verbal abuse. They would be called cowards. And they might be passed over when it came to promotions. Their ground rules were that they only accepted volunteers on these Jewish hunts. I'm, I'm, I'm sickened talking about this. <laughs> this is my family. So these are all volunteers. And uh, Browning essentially points to the notion of the reason that so few men separated themselves from this task was peer pressure. So peer pressure, according to Browning, is 
such a dangerous thing that if society is murderous, you become a murderer. He says that some superior officers who didn't want to execute Jews with disdain were uh, not regarded as real men. And the ones who did were praised accordingly. He goes on in his theory, but the notion of peer pressure being toxic is actually terrifying. It's terrifying because if everybody around you is promoting murder, you could become a mass murderer, a monster. He claims that people were not even threatened. They certainly didn't risk their, wouldn't have risked their lives. Now, Daniel Goldhagen disagrees with Brownie's conclusion in a very, very strong way. Of course, our world is anti-Semitic. Who are we fooling? So Goldhagen's book called Hitler's Willing Executioners is titled Highly Controversial. He argues that these people were rabid anti-Semites, that the hatred of Jews literally coursed through their veins. And he proves this from the fact that they took photos of the deceased. You've seen these pictures. You saw the picture of the German soldiers sneering at the love of, I remember the name of the city in a minute, who's saying Kaddish over the dead before he's cut down himself, and they're laughing at him as he's doing it. Peer pressure. He says, death marches near the end of the war. He doesn't believe that peer pressure could explain why ordinary Germans engage in those actions. He believes that they had to be fully committed to those actions, and he says this couldn't happen with half-heartedness. He writes, and I quote, For that matter, for someone to be pressured into doing something by peer pressure, everyone has to want to do it. Peer pressure can, of course, uh, peer pressure... Everyone else has to want to do it. Peer pressure can, of course, operate on isolated individuals or small groups, but it depends on the majority wanting to do so. It's kind of logical. So the peer pressure argument contradicts itself. If the majority of people hadn't wanted to kill Jews, there would have been no peer pressure to do it. Browning attacks Goldhagen and says, his uniform portrayal of Germans as anti-Semites is dehumanizing. I'm crying. Crocodile tears. How not nice. You're dehumanizing the people who brought about the Holocaust. <laughs> My friend, they dehumanized themselves. Browning's proof is that um, there was a group of this police battalion that executed a number of elderly Poles in retaliation for the murder of a German policeman. That's no proof at all. People have a kindred thing and you touch one of us, we'll touch you. That's no comparison to killing little children. Sorry. I know I'm right because, well, because the day my grandparents escaped the Soviet Union with my father as a baby, the locals came to kill my grandparents and my father. And I heard the story from my grandmother many times. And that's 1946. Well, the truth is that Hitler's willing executioners are not only Germans, but a vast array of the population living in Eastern Europe. This is a very, very intense, painful, and difficult subject to talk about, and the truth is I don't want to belabor it. 
The fact that Hitler's willing executioners also murdered handicapped people in the euthanasia program or killed Soviet prisoners or exterminated Romas or other people uh, in no way, in my humble opinion, is able to exonerate the charge or the brutality that was unique against the Jewish people. But here is my point. Browning is no fool. And even if he's wrong about the Holocaust, the very notion that he could use the argument of peer pressure to explain the murder of hundreds of thousands of innocent people. I'm talking about the people who were hunted down, not those who were gassed or shot into open graves. I didn't even talk about Lithuania, that at the end of the war was 96% of its Jewish population murdered, the vast majority by the locals, with hardly any Gestapo or SS involvement. The, the, the notion that people might be influenced by peer pressure the notion that intelligent psychologists can even discuss this idea, whether it's true or factually incorrect, is terrifying. That means if we don't protect ourselves from peer pressure, we are capable of violating the most basic ideas and ideals that we believe in. OMG. What are you going to do to protect yourself? It means you can violate your humanity. If everybody around you does this, you can actually become a monster. What you may perhaps say, in Browning's defense, is that there were some Germans, or Lithuanians, or Latvians, or Estonians, or Croats, or Ukrainians, who murdered Jews because of peer pressure. Because everybody else was keen to do it. Think about that, though. Peer pressure is so dangerous that it can actually turn a decent person into a subhuman demon, a monster. I don't use the word animal. Animals aren't evil. So we really need to protect ourselves from peer pressure. Peer pressure is so strange to me that people talk about peer pressure with teens and adolescents, when at the same time there's a book that describes a nation, thousands of people, turning into unmitigated monsters because of peer pressure. And we think, oh, peer pressure has nothing to do with us. It's got everything to do with us then. That's what the conclusion of modern psychology comes to. How are you going to protect yourself? Rabbeinu Bachayan knows this. He doesn't have to read Battalion 101 to know this. He got it from the same source as Rambam. He knows what our sages said. In the Pirkei Rabbi Lezer, it says, you want to know what this is like to help, it, uh, to help clarify for you? He says, if you go into, Pirkei Rabbi Lezer says, to a base merkachim, you go into a, a place uh, of, that produces perfume, even if you didn't actually dab or create something, an actual application of perfume, you'll walk out smelling nice. You'll absorb, by nature, you'll absorb the smell. If you go into a place of foul smelling, you'll come out smelling foul without taking a bath in it. We are all influenced by our environment. This is a total fact. So, so how am I going to avoid this? Ah, The answer is that I have to become a source of influence because otherwise I'll be influenced. Now, Rabbeinu Bechaya has already set us free. I am a slave no longer. But if I am a slave no longer, if I don't have to kowtow, if I don't have to be a slave and a servant because they don't provide for me, how do I protect myself 
from becoming influenced. Says Rabbeinu Bachaya, not if you need. Please scratch that word out, in my humble opinion. The im and if, which is we know that im oftentimes in Torah doesn't mean if but when. So when you have to rebuke them, and you will have to, because invariably it's not okay if you just go along to get along, you become part of the problem. You need to speak up. Says, says Rabbeinu Bechayim, and if you're going, in fact, to, 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 to rebuke them, what happens is that you're going to have to be able to get over, oh, I don't want to be offensive. Why? Well, simple, says the Pas Lechem. If you don't want to be offensive, sorry, we'll go first to the Marpel and Nefesh. Marpel and Nefesh says, because you have come to the conclusion they don't have anything to give you. You get what you need from Hashem. You're not going to flatter them. You're not going to be, so to speak, ingratiating yourself. And the Marpel and Nefesh brings a stunning teaching of our sages which is found in the Gemara in Mesechet Ketubot on page 105b. And it's based on a verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 29.4, that says, Melech b'mishpat yamid eretz. A king, a magistrate, with justice, will establish the land or society. Ish trumais, and a person of free gifts, yaharaseno, is going to destroy society. The Marple and Nefesh says, Eini doi medayin. Pardon me. If a judge, the one who administers justice, does so with, a, uh, uh, with force, with a sense of authority, executive power, he doesn't need, the justice system doesn't need you. The justice system has a job to make sure that you are coerced or forced into doing the right thing. That's what the justice system is about. Yamidonets then you can have a peaceful society. A Kohen, a priest, a holy man. But his job is to work in the Beis HaMikdash. How is he sustained? Well, he gets gifts from the farmers. You know, and if you're like a Kohen, that you're going out to the granaries to receive your gift, that person can't be relied upon. In other words, if you are the one who is at the mercy of people, how in heaven are you going to rein them in? The answer is you can't. If I think that my sustenance comes from somebody else, I could never say anything. Are you kidding? If I say something, I'm going to be isolated. I'll be ostracized. I'll lose my business. I'll lose my ability to function. I have to sustain myself. Hey, you got to survive. But now that I've learned Shara Betochen, now that I know I'm a slave no longer, if he's going to be rebuked, he's not going to, so to speak, be worried about their honor, which doesn't mean, by the way, you should dishonor anybody. I'll share that with you in a moment. The Paslechem says, He's not going to try to use what they call in Yiddish, literally silk gloves. You know, kind of to, to say something but not really say anything. Dodge the raindrops. 
use uh, ambiguous terms. He won't be forthright, and that wouldn't be respectful. Guess what he says? That kind of rebuke will get you nowhere. You need to be straightforward with people. Osle Yispolo. They're not going to be impressed. They won't be phased from his teichacha. Because he's, he's afraid. Afraid to get up and say the truth. Many years ago, I was a coward. Somebody was doing something really bad in the community. And I had to deal with it. I was a coward. So what's the easy way out? I figured I'd, I'd give a sermon about it. I'd talk about it. But I had this one person in mind. And I was sure that he would understand the message. And I'll never forget. I was in this very room. He came over to me after. He says, Rabbi, you gave it to them good today. I said, Oyvei. And then I became always coward. And I said, look, actually, here's the situation. I was still a coward. I did it a few weeks later. But you have to deal with it eventually. You need to deal with things. You need to be able to deal in a straightforward way. And if you're going to always worry about not offending people, it's not going to work. Now that doesn't mean to go around and be offensive. In Hayyim Yayim, the Hayyim Yayim of Chavav Adar, the Rebbe writes, quoting a letter from the Friedrich Rebbe, before the commandment, that's what we're speaking out, you should surely reprove, it is written, that you will not hate your brother. The rest of the verses build a in your heart. For this is a necessary prerequisite for rebuking a fellow person. The verse also continues, do not bear a sin because of him. That is to say, if your reproof is ineffective, it is certainly you who are at fault. Because if your words would be sincere, they would have an impact. The reason your words didn't make a difference is they didn't come from the heart. You see, the problem is that most often when we quote-unquote rebuke others, we don't do it right. We do it arrogantly. We do it disparagingly. We do it with our own agendas. And it's ineffective. Entirely ineffective. Elsewhere in Hayyem Yim, the Rebbe writes, this is in the 22nd day of El, he says, Teres HaChasidus Deresh's demands that before you begin to do any kind of tochacha rebuking, you got to cut your fingernails. What does that mean? Nitschdechen. Not to gash. And he quotes a Zohar. The Zohar says, That Zohar literally means is that the klipa, that the negative forces, if you need to have modern terminology, the germs get stuck under your fingernails. That's actually true. When you're worried about cleaning, clean under your fingernails. Doctors will tell you, make sure water runs under your fingernails and keep your nails short. Because if your nails are long... There's, that's where the culprit hides. That's where, literally, the germs are, and that's where the klipa, the, so to speak, unholy forces that attach themselves to you, that's where they hang out. That's where we have natila tyadayim. It's called in Yiddish negel vaser. You wash your hands in the morning. That's where the klipa goes. And as it, it refers to in this particular situation, when a person comes to say something to somebody, but he gashes the person as if, clawing them, when you claw somebody, you do nothing positive. You need to get rid of that sharp nails. You can't claw anybody. You have to 
speak in a manner that comes from the heart. The previous Rebbe, in that very letter, goes on to write and he says, first of all, reproving somebody should never be done in public. Public shaming is totally inappropriate. If you are sincere, you've got to have a conversation with somebody privately. Besides the fact that there is nothing to be accomplished, he says, it'll be counterproductive. The one who is publicly shamed immediately, intuitively, rises in self-defense. First of all, he tells you, you're telling me? People in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Who are you to tell me what to do? And even if he can't find any major fault within you, he will say, who are you to tell me? Even if this is not your issue, who do you think you are? You have your own issues. The previous Rebbe says it has to be done in a very, very private way, and he recounts a story that happened in the winter of 1906. He says there was a number of Hasidim that were business partners, and one of them behaved inappropriately. And he said he saw the way his father got involved in a very difficult and complicated situation. And he had to take some harsh repercussion, but he did it in the quietest of ways. Nobody knew. And his father mentioned to him, this is the mitzvah of covering the blood, a proverbial interpretation of not having somebody's blood rush to the face, not embarrassing somebody in public. He recounted that in the summer of 1891, there was a, 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 a very, very intelligent, highly intelligent and educated chassid who seemed to be quite flippant with criticizing others. And uh, the Rebbe Rashab commented, there's a, a, a head without a body. Because the head is like he has lots and lots of knowledge, but the body of Yiddishkeit is missing because he has no sensitivity. There's a mimer that was actually released for study for Yud Beis Yud Gimel Talmud, very timely, in the year 1935. And it's all about how one should rebuke. It talks about a person who's in his senior position, and it talks about a person whose job is leadership of the Jewish community. And it says, yeah, you have to rebuke. And you have to rebuke to the point, as the Gemara says, in Mesechet Bava Metziah, even a hundred times. As the Gemara in Erchen tells us on page 16, even until the person hits you because he's so angry at you for telling you, telling you off. He says, yeah, that's true. However, he goes on to explain, it cannot be done in public. It has to be done quietly. He says, it's a terrible way if it's done with embarrassment. And he says, even then, it has to be done with sincerity and humility. And he describes the humility in great detail. And he says, if you come and talk about the evil of the sin and the consequence, you'll accomplish nothing. Instead, you have to talk about lack of sensitivity. And it's an animalistic kind of behavior to be ignorant of one's surroundings, like a bull in a china shop kind of. You have to find a way to speak, appeal to somebody's emotions and his intelligence and his spirituality. And he says, otherwise, it says, when the generation is sinful, then then the leader becomes a partner, so to speak, in crime. He's blamed for their behavior. And the Rebbe goes on to say, the Friedrich Rebbe says, this is really a confluence of literally centuries, millennia of Torah literature on the subject. He says, the person who does this, as it's illuminated by Chassidus, has to also when he points a finger at somebody else, as one wise person said, there's three fingers pointing back at you, he has to point fingers at himself. 
He said, if you see something wrong with somebody else, you have to be certain that the same is found within you in a more refined sense. But then again, you're in a position to lecture or to rebuke. You have to be in a more refined position. So little things make a bigger difference. Higher level of purity, the more a tiny impurity becomes visible. And he says, when you realize that as much as you're rebuking somebody else, you're actually rebuking yourself. You're speaking about it, and you include yourself in that rebuke. And with great humility, but also in an unvarnished way. Not in what we call a politically correct fashion. So he says, if you have betochen, if you know that you don't have to worry about, but what will happen? What do you mean what will happen? You're doing the right thing. If you do it right. If you do it with humility and sensitivity, whatever parnasa is yours will be yours. Whatever fame and fortune is yours will be yours. And whatever won't, won't be regardless of what you do. That's called betachan. That's trust in Hashem. I'm not going to worry about, well, how do I say it in a respectful way? Because that's going to diminish the efficacy and the straightforwardness of what I actually have to say. And it will therefore be ineffective. Even if it's done in a humble and contrite and sincere fashion. And if you have to embarrass them, embarrass them? How could you embarrass anybody? Well, it's not so simple. You take a look in Hilchas Deus, just a few halachas later, the Rambam says that uh, a person behaves inappropriately, and you come and you tell him, listen, you've got to stop doing this, and he doesn't listen to you, you have no choice. You have no choice. The Rambam goes on to say that when there is no choice, then you have to stand up, and you have to do what is necessary, even in a very public way. In fact, the Rambam, in the end of Halacha Ches, says, If it's the honor of heaven at stake, then if a person doesn't listen when you came privately, then then you're forced to confront them and shame them in public. Then you have to publicize, this is wrong. You tell the person to his face, shame on you. You strip him of his dignity. Rahman uses very sharp words. You curse him. He says, what did the prophets do? Did they walk on eggshells? Did they mince their words? Obviously you have to do it like the prophets did it. In the sincerest and in the humblest of ways. So they gave man. You're not going to be ashamed. You're not going to be embarrassed. You're not going to be embarrassed because from who is there to be embarrassed? Here we have, find something interesting. The words of Rabbeinu Bechai are, Lo You won't pretty it up. You won't beautify it. You won't kind of, you know, smooth things over. Hasheker. This is a lie. Well, it's a beautiful lie. You can you kind of reframe it. Make it beautiful. But it's still a lie. It's still untrue, unhealthy, and immoral. And it has to be called out as such. The Pas Lechem says, Don't beautify Derech the way that they're behaving. If they're doing something which is the epitome of evil and deceit, Don't make it look good. Don't pretty it up. Call it out for what it is. The Tev Halavanan has a different version. He says it's not a hey. It should say, 
What does that mean? He says, Yefeach comes from the terminology of rationale. Higoyen. With words, you can somehow turn things around. People have a way with words. They call murder mercy today. Compassionate care. Hastening somebody's demise is not called an act of killing. It's called an act of compassion today. But that's what it is. And we have an obligation to say so. This is wrong. How do you know? Because Hashem says it's wrong. It doesn't matter how people feel about it. He says, don't use words to shift the perspective and reframe it falsely. David HaMelech uses this word in the 27th Psalm, verse 12, when he says, hamas. People who rationalize or trivialize robbery, dishonesty. This is like so current. This is so real. This is so now. Written a thousand years ago. Rabbi Nebuchai is speaking to you and me about not being phased by the political correctness around us. To be strident. And don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying look for battles. I'm not saying get involved in anything that isn't relevant to Yiddishkeit. We talked about that before. You come to a place, you, the mores uh, that are not relevant in the areas of morality, the ethos that have nothing to do with ethics, just the way people do things, when they say please or how they say thank you, that's fine. And we don't have to look to enrage and to engage but we do have to try to influence. And sometimes, when you're faced with a necessary evil, you have to call it out and say it for what it is. It's not an option. If you don't have betachen, you'll never have the gumption. You'll never have the courage. You have too much at stake. A person says, I have to ruin my livelihood, my success, my career, my fame and fortune. Why is that my problem? You're not risking or ruining anything. All of that is in Hashem's hands. You need to do what is necessary so you don't become influenced. Because if you won't become an influencer, you'll become influenced. And we spent too much time today talking about the dangers of peer pressure. So I'm suggesting that Rebbeinu Bechaya actually talks about peer pressure without talking about it between these two bookends. He talks about not being subservient and then he go, talks about rebuking. But the missing link is the danger of being influenced. And I'll finish with this. Rabbeinu B'chayi goes on to say, and here again, in the way this, uh, the English translation is framed, they give you a whole, a whole um, paragraph of explanation in the middle and they conflate all the verses together. I'm not sure that's correct. So to me it seems that the, the first verse is separate from the others. The other verses talk about fear, and we'll talk about fear tomorrow. But the first verse does not talk about fear. The first verse he says, this is Kemoi Sha'omar, as the prophet said. And I have to tell you, when you look at the Mepharshim, at this prophet, at this prophetic statement, this pasuk, this verse, which is found in the third chapter of Isaiah, in the seventh verse, it doesn't exactly read this way. It doesn't read that way. According to Rashi and Radak, either, Rashi, either Isaiah wasn't going to be challenged or if he would have been challenged, Hashem prevented him from being challenged. 
Rabbeinu Bahai understands the larger message of this verse is not only speaking about Isaiah, but rather Isaiah sharing with us an attitude that is relevant and meaningful for us all. As Isaiah the prophet says, And what did he say? He said, The Lord God helps me. Nobody helps me. Hashem helps me. Yeah, of course, I say thank you if you help me. But I don't rely on that help and I won't do the wrong thing in order to try and obtain it. Because my help comes from Hashem. And therefore, he says, I was embarrassed. What was Isaiah doing? He was speaking truth to power. He was speaking to the enormous peer pressure that he and others faced. And he was fierce. And he delivered his messages unflinchingly. And he said, He made his face like a flint, like stone, and with a stony expression. He, so to speak, was resolute, and he delivered the message. And he said, I knew I would not be ashamed. They'll threaten you. Will shame you, will ruin your reputation, will dismantle you piece by piece. My dear friends, all of this comes only from Hashem. Don't be uh, concerned of what people will say. Don't be ashamed. If you have to assume a poker face, a stone, a stony face image, you do what you must and you say the truth. Because the alternative is really simply not an option. This is exactly what the Rebbe showed us during the course of his inspired leadership. The Rebbe would speak about issues, never in a personal way. Never speak about people, always speak about issues. Never character assassinate, never demonize. Never spoke a bad word about a person. He spoke about ideas, he spoke about ideals. He spoke with pain in his heart. He spoke with love and concern and an ocean of faith and trust in Hashem. The Rebbe publicly recounted that once he was threatened that if he wouldn't stop speaking about the issue of who is a Jew, that they would have a team of scholars that would refute the Rebbe's talks on Rashi. And the Rebbe said, firstly, who says they can? Who says? And the Rebbe said, and suppose they refute all of my theses. Suppose they, they prove or try to disprove the Torah I'm teaching. The Rebbe said, this is the truth and it must be said. My honor has nothing to do with this. And there were many who sought to diminish the Rebbe's honor. And in turn, only they were diminished. We don't have, you know, the holiness, the vision, the Ruach HaKodesh, all those things that the Rebbe had. But we can try to emulate the Rebbe in standing tall and proud and having resolute faith in Betochen and Hashem Yisbarach. And if we have Betochen, and if we know that our, our bread isn't buttered by anybody but Hashem, that our sustenance doesn't come from any source other than Hashem, and we live with that Betochen, we will have the ability to serve as a beacon of light and a source of positive influence. We will share the messages of Torah morality and decency 
when we must, without looking for any fights, assuming we can be effective, and if we can't, we will disengage, but we will do the right thing. And if you don't know what the right thing is, seek out your spiritual mentor. Find out what the right thing is. And once you know what the right thing is, do it with zeal, with enthusiasm, with devotion and dedication. And if we do the right thing wholeheartedly, Hashem will always provide for us. That's my uh, humble suggestion as to what Rabbeinu Bachaya is saying in these few incredible words. I hope you'll give this at least thought, serious thought and contemplation. And I hope that together we are strengthened by these teachings, by these words, and that Amir Hashem, as a result of our resolute commitment and devotion, that we will merit and please God very, very soon the coming of Mashiach, Bimheira, will be Amen or Amen. I want to conclude by reminding anybody who is joining to please subscribe. YouTube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. And I'm looking for, I look forward to continuing to share words of Torah and inspiration with you. God bless you. Have a beautiful day.